Now for something completely different, the corporeal manifestation of white noise. Here's Brian Wilson. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all sexes, and all of you who have been practicing your old duck and cover exercises, welcome to another dive headfirst into the damp sponge of podcasting. At the risk of being redundant, I remind you of our stated goal here is to provide something completely different. With that in mind, I'm happy to announce we have a guest. Yes, rather than listen to me drone on about the current events driving us ever closer to perdition, my special guest will be handling that for me. The good news is his uh, comments will no doubt have the clarion tone of sophisticated intelligence, a far and merciful cry from my Neanderthal mutterings about things you already know. The bad news is we've uh, already squandered at least one valuable minute just getting to the point of introduction. I first uh, became acquainted with Don Williams some 30 years ago, if my calendar of spectacular events is accurate. He had the dubious distinction of being among a minuscule band of discerning listeners to a radio show I was coasting and beaming into the logic-free zone of the Great Swamp, also known as our nation's cesspool, D.C. Now, this uh, religious experience uh, moved him to invite me to a regular meeting of exquisite minds he called together for a lunch to discuss current events and other matters at the renowned Smithsonian Institute, where Mr. Williams uh, held the impressive title of uh, senior conservator of really old stuff. It's a very nice title, and upon qualifying himself as really old stuff, he retired. Uh, he and his wife went to an old barn up in the hills of Virginia, where he commenced to write the bestseller, Saving Stuff. Now, at first, this was thought to be his autobiography, uh, but rather, it is a uh, publication that should be mandatory in everyone's home library, as it will inform you on matters of saving the stuff that you cherish from the Ravages of time, mishandling, inattention, divorce, and other destructive events. Don Williams can also be seen on YouTube uh, discussing all sorts of woodworking techniques he's perfected over the years, as well as a, a tour of the unbelievable Studley Tool Chest, which if you've never seen it or even heard of it, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, links to all this stuff will be posted at uh, brianwilson.net, as we uh, always do. The neat part is that uh, Don also maintained an abiding interest in current events and the status of things going on in our world, and his observations invariably qualify for something completely different. So let's get on with it. Dr. Don, good to uh, reconnect with you beyond uh, beyond email. Dr. Brian, how are you doing? I was just thinking uh, a little while ago, it really has been about 30 years that we've known each other and uh, have, have uh, flourished together. But uh, it's been it's been great to hang out with you over the years, and uh, our our lunchtime gatherings were always lots of fun. And I think it was uh, either there or some other interactions that led me to bring you in contact with uh, Walter Williams, Steve Moore, uh, Mark Melcher, other other people of great interest to us and thoughtful thoughtful discourse. So. That is true. That is all. That is all true. I thought uh, and told many people many times that uh, that little lunch gathering was a uh, connection point for you know for all sorts of uh, great things, great times, and information and so on. But the uh, the big takeaway was for me was uh, meeting Walter and Stephen and Mark and 
I believe uh, Jim Bovard attended once upon a time. And, uh, yeah, Doug Bondo was a regular attendee. Doug Bondo, exactly. And by the way, I, I uh, before I forget, uh, I bring you greetings from Mr. Bovard. He was our guest last week. Yeah, and, I saw that. We had a grand old time as as usual. But uh, I do miss Walter. I miss him. Uh, miss him a lot. Me too. I I was uh, really saddened when he departed, but I rejoice that it went on his own terms. If you remember. Yes. He always he always used to say he wanted he wanted to go out by teaching a class and then dying. And that was pretty much it. He taught a class, went out to his car, and that's where they found him. That was it. Yeah. Well, we uh, we did have some great times uh, both there and uh, other times when uh, he and Connie and Cassie and I would get together for dinner and blah blah blah. But uh, those were great memories and great times. And I've often. <laughs> <laughs> I've often wondered, you know, we did so many, uh, so many things on the radio uh, chats just like this, uh, that um, I wonder how he would have handled the last 18, 24 months with all the insanity and skullduggery and nonsensical stuff that's uh, that's been going on in Washington. I, I don't know if he'd been able to stop laughing long enough to have a discussion that, about it. That's exactly my, my impression that he would have just laughed a lot. And, uh, when he was in at George Mason teaching, he would often come to our house for dinner, which was great to have, you know, one-on-one -on -one time with him. Yes. And it was really um, formative for me in understanding how economic systems work. And I, I remember one one dinner, we, I won't say we argued, we discussed with intensity the notion of what is the optimal level of topsoil in a farm. <laughs> So we uh, we did not always stick to small talk. Well, that's uh, I can I can fully appreciate that uh, the whether regardless of where the gathering was, we could go. He could go anywhere, and and a great sense of humor, and uh, of course all the all that great information. And, well, it's uh, like you say, it's uh, sad that he's no longer with us, but it was sure was great having him here for the time and the privilege of uh, of knowing him. Hopefully, um, uh, hopefully Stephen will be uh, joining us next time around. You know, I've uh, been passing in the hall, that type of thing, but we haven't had a chance to sit down and, and have any heart-to-hearts for, uh, for a pretty good while, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get in touch with you, ASAP, uh, because I was recalling that uh, the last, at least one of the last times, all of the last times so that we got together, we always, always wind up jabbering a bit about the political termites doing the usual things that were gradually undermining the pillars of our country, economy, freedom, society, mm -hmm. whatever. And uh, yeah. Looks to me like over the uh, intervening years, that infestation has grown to epic proportions, and uh, the old shining city on the hill is kind of listening to starboard or, or port. It doesn't really matter. Uh, since it's been a while since we've had these conversations, overall, what is your uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, state of the nation? Well, um, I, I would say it is short of uh, a wave of spiritual transformation. It's done for. I was talking with a friend the other day, and he was asking me what my thoughts were of the future. And I said, at this point, what I'm hoping for, uh, the best scenario would be we would have an American Pinochet emerge. I don't see self-governance in this culture working. There's too many people that are purely short-sighted and self-interested, and they don't really value the notion of community at any scope, uh, locally, statewide, nationally. We simply are an aggregation of 350 million people, some of whom agree uh, on some things. And from that 350 million people, you've got 
dozens, if not scores or hundreds of subunits operating on their own wavelength. And without that, you can't can't really have a functioning culture, I would say. So I am truly hoping and literally praying for spiritual revival as the means by which the morass that we are existing in can be transformed. But I am by no means someone who has God on a chain. You know, it'll it'll unfold as it needs to unfold. You know, I have other friends who, who literally think barbarism is going to be fairly common within a matter of months. I, I don't know when. But I don't consider it out of the ordinary if you look at virtually any urban population in the Western world and not conclude that it's feral, then um, you and I must be looking at different things. That optimistic note is where I am right now. <laughs> well, I think there's a certain amount of optimism as long as it's connected to realism. And when you've got the two of them married together like that, how can you go wrong? There's, there's certainly, regardless of the fact there's nothing specifically um, guaranteed, you know, at the same token, there when you line up the dots and they all connect, it may not be the ultimate picture, but it's certainly one of a, of a, of a reasonable number of choices. I'm curious, though, that from a spiritual revival standpoint, I don't get the sense that the, that our our collective society, you know, the 350 million that you referenced, uh, the vast majority of them are necessarily aligned to that kind of thinking. Everything is pretty secular, and um, the idea of self-governance is, is a really cool idea as long as it's on the ball, and it doesn't yeah. extend anything beyond that. So I'm, I'm, I would probably be in total agreement with you that the idea of some sort of coming together is uh, would be a Herculean task, even from a, a Pinochet perspective. Do you conjure up any specifics uh, that might also be in harmony with what we see in going on around us? Um, you mean by, by putting names or faces to the the players? I Not really. I, I, was, I was thinking more from the standpoint of a series of events. I listened to that uh, that podcast you recommended a, a few weeks ago uh, from that intelligence officer, and uh, he was uh, pretty specific while being vague yeah, uh, yeah. in a lot of areas. And, and his, um, his inside information to the extent that um, it, it was, and I, I have no reason to doubt that it was accurate, and I know a lot of people are listening, I have no idea what we're talking about, but there was an intelligence officer who did a podcast with uh, a couple of people, and he specifically laid out as in athletic terms, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, you know, where we were and where we were going and how we were getting there. And um, I don't know that I entirely agreed with uh, with everything, but it certainly was reasonable. You know, it wasn't a disagreement based on his specifics. It was more of a, of a questioning as to, you know, the length, breadth, extent of, of, of how that might come about. But uh, certainly when we see the fires at the food processing and meat processing plants, the bird flus that are wiping out uh, chickens and turkeys, this nonsense with fertilizer, which is, um, well, I would suspect that you'd be more up on that than I would from the agrarian position you're in. Do you see that as, as kind of when you talk about the barbarism, you know, in uh, especially in urban areas resulting from that, uh, tracing it back to the food chain? Well, it certainly has to be connected to that. Hungry people are dangerous people. That's all there is to it. And when you look at any moment in history where there have been famines or even food shortages, what was downstream from that and what was upstream from that. Those are pretty dark pictures. And I just want to go back for one moment. You talked about the challenge of a unified vision for mm. the population and the people. And in keeping with the the title of this podcast of something completely different, 
I think one of the really useful arbiters I have found in trying to understand the nature and character of the culture is uh, the Barna Foundation. And they do surveys and studies on spiritual and religious attitudes in the country. And the number of people who have some sort of transcendent view of existence at the core of their behavior is, is minute, somewhere around 3 to 5 percent. Ninety-five percent of the people are essentially existentialist, uh, and that's that's not going to work. Now, getting on to how things would emerge, I think that the the transition from the normalcy that we have before us now could be switched to a different position on the dial if there was a two-week interruption in the food supply. You know, when you think about New York City. Uh, I think you used to work in New York City, didn't you, Brian? Long Several ago. times, yeah, too yeah, many times. <laughs> I, I would have to go there on occasion for work. I think I've only been to New York City once voluntarily. Uh, that was to see an exhibit at a museum. And when I mentioned it to my wife, she pretty much figured that aliens had invaded and taken her husband away. <laughs> when you're in New York City, uh, particularly in central Manhattan, there's the normal business day where there's traffic and all that hubbub around human endeavors and enterprises. But all night long, there are delivery trucks coming in and garbage trucks taking out. And the amount of inventory that is in place in somewhere like New York City, but I would say any center city USA would be similar, is somewhere between 24 and 36 hours of inventory of, of food. And most people don't have any idea where their water comes from or their electricity. And when those things go out, you got some problems. And uh, frankly, I've been astonished that there haven't been more serious and widespread disruptions to the power grid and the water network. But it doesn't take much to turn a fairly docile population into, into maniacs, uh, violent ones at that. The uh, snowflake in Baltimore, things go pretty crazy on food and toilet paper yeah. and milk. And and, uh, and you're exactly right about the, the trucks coming in and the garbage going out. I, my uh, my first apartment was right off Central Park. And uh, even though I was on the 36th floor, the noise factor is um, disconcerting. But that's beside the point, except to the, the fact that someone cited that it took 30 18-wheelers full of whatever uh, an hour, you know, to restock uh, Manhattan on a daily basis. That number may be higher or lower or just irrelevant to the point that if the stories about the um, oil and kerosene and diesel fuel uh, diminishing severely in different parts of the country were to actually become essentially ubiquitous and the trucks couldn't run, or if they went galt and just said the hell with it, you know, the, the cost and return and so on is not enough to make a, a living wage, that would... Um, then it really wouldn't matter whether or not they were using fertilizer or killing chickens or collecting eggs the, uh, yeah. if the uh, stuff didn't even get through. But do you think that uh, in that regard, uh, that this is just a natural result of different dominoes falling uh, in different societies and cultures and countries around the world, whether it's the Middle East fuel or the Russian gas or, or whatever? Is it just a, what's the phrase, a perfect storm of those things coming together? Or is it possible to slip into our conspiracy theorist uniform, that this is all being engineered by people at the WEF and or different uh, elitist organizations in concert around the world. I think it's both. On one hand, 
we have an immensely complex political economy. And the Hayekians, of whom I am friendly, would argue that complexity breeds stability. Other folks would argue that complexity breeds instability, but it doesn't take much to, to disrupt a network with redounding ripples long, long beyond the boundaries of where you are. But at the same time, the cabal in, in D.C. and Paris and London and all the other capitals of the world that are involved in really productivity and human flourishing, many of those elites have made no bones about the fact that, that to them, catastrophe to the human condition is, is not a bug, it's a feature. And I used to think that the whole notion of conspiracy mongers uh, shrieking about depopulation and things like that I used to think they were sort of wacko. I don't necessarily think that they're wacko anymore. I think that there are people in positions of decision-making power, whether they have authority is another matter of semantics, but they have power to make decisions, and they are purposefully embarking in a pathway that will impart great suffering and great damage to the human the human enterprise. So I do think that there are complexities to the system that can be disrupted. At the same time, I do think that there are uh, people with great resources who want to see harm inflicted on the other. That's the term of a lot of uh, psychology when it comes to um, repression and um, persuasion, is that there's us and then there's the others. And one of the real problems that ordinary people have is normalcy bias. We don't possess, you and I don't possess the impulse to remake the world or to inflict damage to people who don't necessarily share our point of view to punish and harm. That's not what we do because we are not evil people. All people are sinful and fallen and by the grace of God, you know, there we go. But at the same time, we don't necessarily think that it is our position to inflict harm on people who disagree with us. The elites who have billions and billions of dollars, tr literally trillions of dollars at their disposal, don't share that point of view. They think it is their position to um, inflict harm on people who disagree with them. I mean, to the extent that you can comprehend the utterances of Biden and Harris, admittedly, it's a real challenge to come up with <laughs> cogent ideas based on what comes out of their mouth. They really want to see harm come to those who disagree with them. As, as somebody said just recently, I forget, probably on Twitter or blogger, it says, Republicans are trying to strategize on how to win the next election. Democrats are trying to strategize on how to lock you up. So with that, I mean, the best we can do, either on an individual or community basis, is try to get beyond their grasp. And that's, that's a hard point, because as to um, invoke Orwell in a slightly different context, he said, you may not care about war, but war cares about you. And the megalomaniac elites have the same mindset that the KGB did, and it was very explicit. KGB's attitude was, if you disagree with the state, you are mentally ill or a criminal and must be dealt with severely.
So the it would be a um, an exercise of logic to conclude the megalomaniacs, the elites, and so on that have all the money and the power and and the uh, evil designs on the corpus delectable that they are essentially uh, to the extent they can exploit the natural circumstances. They they may not be able to control thoroughly the spread of an Asian flu or um, forest fires in the Northwest or things along that order. But when it happens. They take advantage of the catastrophe and use it to expand their power base and influence, uh, you know, around, well, everywhere for that matter. Well, to the extent that they have a mantra, it is never let crisis go to waste. Right. Well, there is there is that. Well, then then um, let me go back to the two parts with regard to the uh, the spiritual aspect and the and the numbers you cited from Bonner. Is then there's the, there seems to be a little hope short of. Uh, literal divine intervention uh, that uh, that that's going to be the uh, the salvation of the country. Correct. That is my view. Um, a- as you know, I've been uh, a practicing Christian certainly all of my adult life and even younger than that. But it has become all the more central to the way I view the world. Uh, I am not an apocalyptic, prophetic sort of person. We are in the end times. That's not what I'm saying. But I I think that the the natural impulse of humanity is not necessarily to get along, but we do all have some spark of the divine in us. And I think that if we were to fan the flames of that divinity in us, then we might look upon our fellow human beings somewhat more congenially, charitably, cooperatively. I mean, I don't really know exactly how, but um, I think that Following the route of pagan hedonism is not the way to go, and it's pretty hard to look at the culture around us, at least that which is being transmitted publicly, as saying, you know, we are we are living in a barbarous hedonistic culture. When you have when you have sexual perversions of every sort now dominating, you know, the social dynamic and political square. The barbarians aren't at the gate, they're inside the gate. They're inside the gate, and they have all the keys to the lock. The keys. The <laughs> well, from a secular standpoint, uh, the is it possible? Because I know there's been lots of uh, lots of conversations and books and so on. In fact, uh, even Walter and I had uh, some uh, preliminary discussions of, uh, and, and I think he, in, he initiated the thought. Uh, we were on the air in Texas, and uh, he was suggesting that Texas, uh, because it was an aspect of their constitution, secede from the Union, become an independent country that had more than enough of everything, ports, water, fertile land, you know, et cetera, to form that nation and just uh, just allow people of a libertarian mindset to come in. And that sparked that movement that uh, ultimately wound up in New Hampshire, isn't moving along too expediently, but apparently they're making some headway. But is that, uh, in a bigger and general sense, is the concept of secession has uh, has come up in, in a larger context with respect to all the things we're discussing, and, and the country breaking into the Southeast will be one group of independent states that would be one country, the Northwest, the East Coast, all the rest of it. Is that, um, do you think that there is an appetite for that, or does that run contrary, too contrary to to the megalomaniacs that we're dealing with? Well, a lot of it depends on whether it's de facto or de jure. I would say that de facto, it is, it is happening now and will continue to happen. Whether this landmass that we call the United States, whether we call that a unified country, it will not be. There will be, uh, whether we call it devolution or evolution, um, regional regional identities coming more to the fore. 
And in fact, I think that California is leading the way in this because they have made it clear they are not going to obey any edicts from Washington, D.C. that have a constitutional basis. They're just going to go their own way. And I forget where it was just this week. There was a Supreme Court hearing. I think it was a fairly technical administrative matter having to do with a with the jurisdiction doing something. And uh, that jurisdiction said, well, you know, thanks for your opinion. We're not going to follow it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to be happening with increased intensity. And the surprising igniter to the torch has been school boards and garbage going on in schools. One of the only good things we can say about the plague coming from the weapons lab in Wuhan is that more and more parents got to see the garbage that they were insinuating onto their kids at school every day. And that's causing quite a backlash. So it's not the gun-toting militia, you know, rednecks eating jerky while they're deer hunting. No, it's it's the moms that finally had a chance, the moms and dads, who finally had a chance to see the absolute poison that was coming the way of their kids. And, I mean, I remember predicting this before I even knew you, that school school boards would become a huge battleground. But that's one of the places where the schisms will happen. And what I don't know, is it going to be, you know, sort of a broad brush of um, blue cities against red countrysides, or is it going to be neighborhoods against each other? I don't know that there's any way to know that until these things unfold, because the human psyche, if I remember, Brian, you were a psychology major in college, so you would have probably have a better connection to that. I, I just cut up wood and worked with varnish, so I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, it, uh, it, so much of this is, has fermented uh, since I did all that. Uh, I mean, it's, how, it doesn't matter how many years it is, 40, 50 years. It's certainly fermented in, in all sorts of things and, and different terminologies and sensitivities that are inexplicable to my mind. You know, wokeness and whataboutism and cancel culture and all the rest of that is just it's beyond my ability to comprehend on, on any plane that I, that I learned in the classroom or, or out at the farms where we would go for abnormal courses and that type of thing. It's interesting. Uh, you mentioned the school boards, you know, and a lot about these the spiritual aspect of the of the country. I'm uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to get in in mind here a series of stories I've seen, which I suspect you may have also, uh, where agents of the federal government, the Justice Department, have been uh, uh, taking a very active and heavy-handed action against uh, Christian groups, study groups, teachers, uh, uh, individuals uh, like one individual I believe was in Minnesota, father of seven who had been participating in demonstrations in a in a kind of subtle way at Planned Parenthood, yeah, and yeah. Uh, they came in and sent like 20 guys with machine guns out there to arrest him in front of his family four o'clock in the morning, and there have been subsequent stories uh, about that. Uh, that I haven't been able to get into for a variety of reasons, but nevertheless, they made the screen. Do you see that as a, as an extension of an attempt to put a heavy boot on the top of anything that might come out of that discipline? I absolutely do. I think that what is often called the swamp uh, would be, you and I might refer a little more elegantly as the administrative state, and it worships nothing more than its own power, and it despises nothing more than people who will not sign on. And it's clear to me that the Department of Justice and its FBI underling is literally a criminal cabal at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no reason to refer to them in any other way. And, and people might say, 
um, oh, yeah, but the agents on the ground are good people. No, they're not, because they will not disavow the central authority that's governing them because they don't want to have their salaries and retirements at risk. So well, you guys, you know, take care of your pension and your family and your and your position. I, I understand that, but the, that that whole, you know, I was just following orders thing is, uh, you know, still still seems to work well enough. What I find interesting is, you know, that when it happens and it makes the news. I mean, we certainly have seen, especially in Virginia. Uh, up there in Alexandria, the school boards where parents actually stood up and and made uh, made an awful lot of noise, and uh, then the, the governor uh, got uh, switched out and changed in, and it seems that some progress is actually being made in that area. I don't know whether or not that little comparatively small area uh, of the country where that type of activism has had a positive result is is spreading. You know, it's becoming to the point of, of of it would need to be ubiquitous in order for it to have a, a truly lasting effect. I think we'll know the answer to that question within the next 24 months, um, because I think that the movement, the disobedience movement, if you will, of a subjugated populace before uh, educational apparatchiks, that is really heating up. And when you follow the work of Chris Rufo and Corey DeAngelis and some of these other people, their influence is expanding by leaps and bounds, and the state's opposition and threat to them is also growing by leaps and bounds. So we're going to see who's, frankly, we're in a game of chicken right now. And I don't know who's going to blink. Yeah. And and when I've had conversations on a similar tenor with other people, well, the guy who's going to blink is the one who's looking at the biggest number of guns pointed at him. That is true. And um, the game playing or the game strategizing about civil conflict is intriguing. I'm not sure how valid any of it is. I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm just saying I don't know. I don't know how how riled up uh, people will be and how they will enact their discontent. It just seems to me that it's a peculiar situation where all the people, not all, but most of the people imposing tyranny on the public at large, they have a certain amount of what Walter would call sporting tools. Yes. But the population that they're looking at has 400 million sporting tools and 400 billion consumable um, supplies to go in it. It's just sort of head scratching to me. I'm surprised that it hasn't uh, it hasn't made itself manifest in more areas up until this point. I've taken it upon myself to occasionally mock those uh, with their Molan lobby T-shirts and so on and uh, cold dead hands and say, well, you know, so so what are you going to do? You know, four cars pull up in your driveway at four o'clock in the morning. You have no warning. They're standing out there pounding the hell out of your door. And you've heard all the stories. Are you really going to do that? Are you really going to stand up? Are you really going to you know, have the courage of your convictions to make that move when you've got a wife and three kids in the other room? These are it's not a matter of getting together out in the woods and going to march on the Capitol building or the BATF office or the FBI, whatever the hell the scenario could be constructed. But it's still, a like you say, it's a matter of sporting arms and the food to feed them. Because the frog is, is, you know, is being boiled slowly, as as the analogy goes. So is it just a matter of everybody is uh, getting comfortable with their surroundings and uh, waiting for something really extreme, like an outright ban of, of something, whether it be guns or religion or movement or travel? That would be the spark that sets it off. I think it may have to be even more extreme than that. One of the things that has occurred to me in in recent years is that I am no longer a constitutionalist. I describe myself as a declarationist. I think the Declaration of Independence is 
the most perfect expression of the human aspiration in a corporeal sense. I think the Constitution is a waste of time and paper. But if you think about how the Declaration was concluded, it was, to this we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And I think that the overwhelming majority of those people you were ridiculing in their, you know, come and get it t-shirts is that they will not pledge their lives, fortunes, or sacred honor. They can't even be bothered to get up off the couch and put down the beer. Yeah, there's a, the, the game's coming on in 30 minutes. Don't bother me. See me the other weekend or whatever. I see all that. I've, um, I've railed against that in different markets on the air. And usually, uh, you know, the crickets come out more than any sort of explanation. But I'd be, uh, I'd be interested to see, for example, one of the tipping points uh, in conversations I've had recently has been looking forward to November the 8th. And the uh, and the various rumblings that are going around that there's going to be a, a whatever a false flag black swan dead swan dead duck you know some sort of uh, a new a new variable a new variance rather of uh, uh, the uh, dreaded COVID or something that's going mm-hmm. to uh, if not absolutely uh, call off postpone the midterms but uh, at the other end of the extreme different uh, well-funded little groups have already got it in place to challenge every return in every state, or at least the swing states, in order to delay the ultimate decision, you know, the, who actually won the won these various campaigns. Uh, just uh, just more of the cloven pivot type of disruption to keep things from from running uh, running normally. I don't know if you have a if you have a thought or opinion on any of those that may have take precedent over the other, but uh, they certainly are provocative. I think the chance of disruption of the upcoming election a week from a couple days or a month from a couple days ago is problematic just from a tactical point of view. How do you get something like that in place that quick uh, over this next four weeks? It could happen, I suppose. I think the larger issue is if the Republicans have have a, a meaningful victory in the upcoming election. By that, I mean they have maybe uh, a margin of 40 or 50 in the House and a margin of six or eight in the Senate. You know, what's going to happen? I think what would concern me more is that whoever it is that owns Joe Biden, and we know that he's for sale, so he's been bought, um, that they decide, okay, this is the time to burn it all down. And so they don't allow anything to withhold their truly nefarious um, policy decisions, again, inflicting as much harm on the populace as they can with full knowledge that that's what they're doing. You know, come the 2024 election, there may not be a country to have an election over. I do think that one of the things that could be the spark that ignites it is when they arrest Donald Trump, which I believe they will do, if they make it a very public and fairly um, obscene event whereby he is abused, he is struck, he is dragged physically off the stage. There is no doubt that there is something that could only be called a cult following of him. There are people who support him. There are people who are pleased with what he accomplished as a president, but not necessarily cultish. But I, I know a lot of people who are part of a Donald Trump cult. It is it is a religious fervor mm-hmm. that they have. And if he were to be 
almost literally physically abused during the arrest, that would be something that's the wild card. Because there's a lot of people who are not necessarily unhinged, but they are this close to blowing a gasket. <laughs> yeah. What's difficult, uh, at, at least in, in in my circle, uh, in discussing these things, is uh, there's a there's a general uh, patience and acceptance of the theory, but then there's a cognizant dissonance of the reality, or at least a, any suggested reality or possible re- potential reality. Those the the dot connection that I was that was uh, speaking of uh, earlier. Uh, but that that raises another question, and it's, it's it's not exactly off the subject, but just in a different perspective. Do, do you have any um, any thoughts on uh, Matthias de Metz mass formation to psychosis theory? Um, what little I know about it, and I haven't read it, and I've actually not heard him interviewed. I've just heard other people speaking about it. It makes, to the extent that I understand it, it sounds perfectly plausible, and if you overlay it on Charles McKay's popular delusions and the madness of crowds, it makes perfect sense. It makes yeah. perfect sense. So like Legos, and, the way that comes together, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember um, about two and a half years ago, I had a, one of my nieces wrote me and said, Uncle Don, what do you think about this disease thing? Uh, <laughs> and I said, to the best of my understanding, this sounds more like a psychological warfare operation. And looking back on it two and a half years later, I don't think I would change much of that. It was a medical manifestation of a psychological warfare operation. Yeah, I I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I did find it rather fascinating uh, in a uh, worrisome sort of way that uh, that so many, literally so many, millions of people just just caved, you know, and followed the the dictates of the of the magic box, uh, you know, and the, uh, the the experts and the the mass uh, the media uh, avalanche of go do stop this. I, I was really amazed so many people just fell in line with that, as opposed to just flipping on the bird and saying, yeah, right, sure. But um, and just keeping your business open or not wearing a mask is sufficiently intimidating uh, uh, that uh, the government may be sent over its gendarme then uh, when things get considerably uh, hotter uh, than that, more confrontational, more basic, I would uh, eventually say the uh, the future's uh, not that bright. But um, I don't know, maybe they got that, maybe maybe everybody's gotten over it. Maybe everybody's, maybe it's a one-trick pony. They say, well, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, you know, whatever. Maybe that would be uh, that would be something. I don't. I don't know. I um, I just know that as we've discussed uh, numerous times, at the conclusion of it all, we always wound up saying, well, without any further evidence of being able to state emphatically that it's going to be A or B, at least we can say it's going to be interesting to watch. So, man, the popcorn machine and uh, sit back and, and get over. I've I've really enjoyed the hell out of the conversation. I wish we we, we really ought to do this more often. The, uh, there's so many other uh, subjects that bear scrutiny, but the parking meter outside is going to run out in a second or two. And I, but I wanted before you go, I wanted to give another plug for saving stuff. And I was looking at it the other day in anticipation of us getting together. And uh, maybe we talked about this, maybe we did. But I see a cable TV show there. If you were up for it, you know, I, I mean, there each chapter, each subject of it, can certainly other things that have come in that weren't discussed in the book and so on. Is that did we talk about that or, or did, was that a discussion that came and went or what do you think? We did. And I've been approached other times and um, you will probably find this nearly impossible to believe. <laughs> but um, as as I'm approaching 
70, uh, I'm getting more curmudgeonly. And I don't, I don't really care about doing any of that stuff. I, you know, I live so far out in the hinterlands that uh, you can't find, I mean, GPS doesn't even really work out where I live. And I have a studio where I can make things and invent things. In fact, as soon as I'm off the phone with you, uh, I'll go up and work on some, some formulation chemistry that I've been toying with. So it's, it's something that I have been approached with. It's, not, it's something I've thought about. And other than making some little instructional videos with a local videographer, I'm not really much interested in going beyond that. I, yes, you and I did have in-depth conversations about some of the strategic and, and um, informational and marketing aspects of that. And, you know, I just, that would probably involve too much interaction with humanity for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, the commissioning part, I have no doubt at all. I uh, passed that milepost a while back, and you're right. It does uh, seem to be uh, just like the boiling frog incrementally, it, uh, but it gets a lot, just a lot more comfortable just not having to, to deal with all that. But um, it's still, a, uh, again, not to... Uh, not to belittle all the things we've discussed, but uh, if uh, those of you listening, if you do nothing else, uh, Christmas is coming, and and just for the sake of the fact that I, you know, it is a magnificent publication and has saved a whole bunch of stuff, you know, here at this house under uh, the tutelage of Dr. Williams. I recommend it highly for uh, for everyone, and uh, that's well, the last you. I'll say about that. What? Thank I'm you. sorry. Oh, you're more than welcome. The I don't know that we'll have an opportunity to discuss it again now that we've had this conversation. And I'm sorry, I forgot the depth in which we had that discussion about about the cable show. And I certainly that's, understand. That, you know. That's quite all right. You you've got you've got a million and one irons in the fire, as do I. So, my my dear wife is convinced that I'm ADD, and I'm I retort is <laughs> simply that I'm hyper curious. So, well, there you go. Well, look, we'll we'll do this again uh, sometime in the very foreseeable future, barring the zombie apocalypse doesn't get started without us but uh thanks again for your time don it's always always great yapping with you great chatting with you brian take care don't uh, fail to remember halloween is right around the pumpkin wander on over to our gaudy facebook page grab a bushel and a peck of uh, these books i've worked my fingers to the bone to write for you and uh, throw them at the kids who'll be banging on your door in the middle of dinner come uh come the uh, the big day in just a couple of weeks or or you know you can save them for christmas they make great stocking stuffers, assuming no one is wearing the stockings at the time. Of course, they, they work equally well in pantyhose and L.L. Bean waiters, I've been told. If all goes well, as I mentioned to Dr. Don, um, noted economist and uh, financial news commentator, Stephen Moore, a good friend of mine that goes back to the early days of uh, lunch at the Smithsonian with Walter Williams and uh, Dr. Don and all the rest of that. Stephen of Freedom Works, I'm sure you've seen him on the box on Fox on Financial Business News and so on channel, the Heritage Foundation graduate, former member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board and little known captain of his neighborhood badminton team, uh, hopefully will be uh, with us for a chat about money and other scary stuff. I can assure you the conversation will be something completely different. Don't miss it. I know I won't. So that uh, wraps it up, sports fans, for Joe Ted, our intrepid bus driver and uh, manager of the new Roach Rouge Hotel and Body Shop in Bucolic Moss Creek, New Jersey. Brian Wilson here. Thanks for potting with us. Pull the plug, Joe. <laughs>